When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, progressive news without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today, we'll be talking about America's wars in the Middle East with military historian Andrew Basevich. He says we can never win there. Also later in this hour, Amy Goodman talks about how she got arrested in my hometown of St. Paul and some other highlights from the 20-year history of Democracy Now! First up today, Naomi Klein is a hero of ours. Of course, she's an award-winning journalist, author of the international bestsellers This Changes Everything, Capitalism versus the Climate, and also The Shock Doctrine, The Rise of Disaster Capitalism, and No Logo. Each of her books has been translated into more than 25 languages. She's a contributing editor for Harper's, and she writes a regular column for The Nation. Naomi Klein, welcome to the program. Thanks. Great to be with you. Well, our topic today is the politics of climate in the Democratic primaries. The Hillary Clinton campaign has been working hard to convince us that she doesn't take money from fossil fuel companies, money that might influence her positions on climate change. I guess I guess we should start with Eva Resnick Day. Right. Eva Resnick Day was was a young woman campaigner with Greenpeace who confronted Hillary Clinton on this question, actually very politely thanked thanked Hillary for for being outspoken on climate change and asked her whether she would commit to not taking fossil fuel money. And and Hillary quite um, now infamously lost her cool and, and talked about how she was so sick of the Sanders campaign lying that she doesn't take money from fossil fuel companies, which actually wasn't the question. The question was whether she takes fossil fuel money in the order of the words matters because you know, it's illegal to, for candidates to take money directly from corporations. But as we all know, there are lots of ways of getting around that, including bundling. And, 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 um, and so uh, it, 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 she doesn't dispute the fact that, as Greenpeace, uh, Greenpeace investigation found, that between her campaign and her super PAC, she has uh, taken $4.5 million from fossil fuel employees or uh, in including registered lobbyists. So the, the Hillary forces also tell us that the money she's gotten from oil and coal and gas companies and their lobbyists and their employees has been insignificant for her campaign that in fact they're not in the top 20 industries that have contributed to her campaign. She says they've given a lot more to Republicans. What do you think of those arguments? 
Well, I mean, the fact that this amount of money is is considered insignificant, I think, speaks to just how crazy uh, the amounts of money that politicians receive um, from the private sector is in, in U.S. elections. I say this as somebody who lives in Canada, sort of looking on the outside. I think the rest of the world is going, what? You know, sounds significant to us. Um, but it's certainly true that the fossil fuel industry as a whole tends to big-time back Republican climate change deniers and then hedge their bet by funding more centrist, pro-industry Democrat. Um, so I think we should see those donations more as a, as a hedge. And it's absolutely true that the fossil fuel industry's best-case scenario, right, would be no climate action at all and, 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 and just having rep- uh, Republican climate change deniers in power. But if they're going to have Democrats in power, they want Democrats that are more likely to t- take um, less intrusive action on climate change. But, but, you know, you can't prove that a donation, you know, leads directly to a political position. Uh, And, and, you know, what I argue in the piece is that that $4.5 billion overlooks, um, for instance, uh, donations from uh, someone like Warren Buffett, who's a big Hillary Clinton supporter, has held multiple fundraisers for her. When we think of Warren Buffett, we don't think fossil fuel money, but the fact is that uh, Berkshire Hathaway's, which owns, you know, a mixed set of assets you know, is up to its eyeballs in coals, owns some of the dirtiest uh, coal-fired utilities in the country, also uh, you know, a coal, major coal-carrying uh, um, railway. Uh, so that, might, that isn't even included. And then, and then there's also the Clinton Foundation, which is now called the Bill, Hillary, and Chelsea Clinton Foundation. And it takes direct donations from fossil fuel uh, money from the corporations uh, themselves. So uh, Uh, There's a lot of money in there. Is the big issue in climate politics really Hillary's campaign contributions? Well, I don't think it's the big issue. I actually think that the contributions are symptomatic of the worldview that is the problem. Uh, In the sense that, you know, I think there is a Clinton worldview that really is best embodied by the Clinton Foundation, by the foundation that bears her family name, you know, which is where her, you know, her headquarters are uh, out of the foundation. Um, and it's, it's a model of change that sees um, progress coming from deals made between the most powerful people in the world. And it's, it's a model of change that really excludes social movements. It's Bill making a deal with the pharmaceutical companies that they'll knock down their prices for AIDS drugs for the developing world, um, and that way we don't need to change these incredibly aggressive patent protections. Uh, so it's it's it, it, and there's many many examples of this. I mean, this is the way the Clinton Foundation works: is it's all these high level partnerships between corporations and governments, and you know celebrities sort of sprinkling fairy dust over the top of it, and uh, you know and cut out of the equation are these mass social movements, and that's why I think this campaign is really interesting in how sharp the contrast is between different models of change represented by the, by the Sanders campaign and the Clinton campaign. And what Sanders is saying is we aren't going to achieve political change unless we have huge pressure from below, unless we organize as, as social movements uh, and push for that pressure against elite power. Whereas the Clinton model is, it's all about sort of appealing to the better angels at the top, let's make a deal. And, and, and I would say that when it comes to climate change, it's that model that has been tried and failed over the past two decades and is deeply, deeply dangerous. 
So my my worry about, about Hillary Clinton is she would come to power, she would take power as president in a moment where we're really up against the wall when it comes to climate. And it is not a let's make a deal incremental moment. It does require the kind of boldness that Bernie Sanders represents. One more moment on the Clinton Foundation. I spent a little time on their website yesterday. It's not just about the the mega rich and the celebrities. They invite all of us to donate to the Clinton Foundation to help fight climate change by paying for trees for poor farmers in Malawi. This is the Clinton's Trees of Hope program. If you go to that page, there's a Take Action button that leads you to another page with another button that says Support This Community, which is one village in Malawi. And Mm -hmm. here's how you support them. You purchase carbon offsets. They have a calculator to figure out your personal carbon use and then Mm -hmm. offset that with a contribution to the Clinton Foundation my carbon offset came to $79. You can pay with PayPal. So it's not just the mega rich and the celebrities that work with the Clinton <laughs> Foundation. It's, it's you and me buying yeah. our carbon offsets. Yeah, and this is why I say this model of change, these so these are often called, you know, market solutions, right? You get to keep on consuming as you are, but you can buy these offsets um, and and feel better about it. I think Thomas Frank in a in a quite scathing excerpt from his book in in Harper's talked about the whole sort of Clinton model as being liberal off buying liberal offsets, right? Um, for for for, for uh, multinational corporations. And and you know, I, I guess the thing that really strikes me about all of this is that Bill Clinton as president unleashed the era of the super billionaire, right? And, you know, whether it was pushing shock therapy in the former Soviet Union or in Latin America, you know, after the peso crisis or in Asia after the Asian financial crisis, um, and pushing these policies of privatization and deregulation and free trade policies that really have created the Davos class. And so now... You know, there's Bill Clinton going, okay, well, now we'll take our our percentage, you know, so we all feel better. Uh, I know this sounds terribly cynical, and I am talking about Bill, not Hillary, but I think it is fair to say this is not just about Bill. When Hillary's name is on the foundation, when this is where she works, when this is really her model of change as well. And I believe she she was Secretary of State when Bill was doing a lot of his good works with the Clinton Foundation. Uh, certainly, right? And there's been all, there have been various investigations, and this is not what I focus my piece on, investigations about, you know, potential conflicts of interest of, uh, of, you know, people who wanted certain things to happen at, at the State Department making a donation to the foundation. And you know, this is why, you know, my argument is this is not about a, just about a gotcha corruption scandal, right? right. Uh, there, I, I'm not saying those aren't out there. There may well be smoking guns smoldering somewhere. I wouldn't be at all surprised. But I'm saying even without the smoking guns, if you look at this model of change, it is, it is exactly what we don't need in a moment of planetary crisis. Because what we need is this willingness to stand up to powerful interests, to say, no, you can't dig up uh, you know, three quarters of the carbon that is that, that you're now counting towards your 
fossil fuel reserves. That is really hard. It's a lot harder than planting trees in Malawi. It is a lot harder than cap and trade. It, it requires a willingness to go head to head with these very powerful corporate interests. And I think Hillary's, you know, when Hillary talks about being somebody who gets things done, she's talking about this ability to get those powerful people in the room together and come up with these so-called win-wins. But the problem with those, you know, elite win-wins is they often lead to everybody else getting losing. Bernie Sanders says he has introduced the most far-reaching climate legislation that we have. Uh, is he right about that? Well, he's certainly sponsored this this bill, which is called the Keep It in the Ground Act. It's it's a pretty amazing piece of legislation, because, precisely because it echoes the demands that have been coming from the grassroots climate justice movement. And um, what what it's calling for is no new fossil fuel leases on federal lands of any kind, coal, gas, uh, and uh, or oil. And uh, so this would be using the power, the executive power of the federal government, right, to hand out fossil fuel leases to say we're just not going to do that. So that doesn't mean there are no new fossil fuel leases anywhere, but on federal lands, you know, why would we continue to push for more extraction, more exploration when we know we already have much more in reserves than is compatible with the temperature targets set in Paris. So, yeah, I think it's fair to say that that is the uh, boldest piece of climate legislation. It's not comprehensive. I mean, I would say that this is not, you know, the be-all and end-all. We still need a carbon tax. We still need, um, you know, big supports for renewables. But it's it's absolutely the piece that's been missing, which is that willingness to say no. And if you look at Hillary Clinton's um, climate proposals, there's a lot to recommend it, including a willingness to go big on renewables. But what is it, what really distinguishes the two campaigns is this willingness to stand up in a really clear way to fossil fuel interests. Um, and that, you know, the big difference between Hillary and Bernie is uh, over fracking uh, um, and, and, and the Sanders campaign's willingness to just simply say no to fracking and Hillary Clinton saying, no, we need to regulate it and have this thing called safe fracking. Um, and, and then the other big distinguish, distinguishing policy is the Sanders campaign backing this piece of legislation that says no new fossil fuel leases on federal lands. On the renewable front, Hillary does say she's for solar panels. She promises, I think it's half a billion. Is that right? Solar panels will be installed by the end of her first term. That seems uh, visionary. It's it's absolutely bold. It's her misfortune that that she come, she would be coming to power at a time when we don't just need to say yes to renewables. We also need that willingness to say no to fossil fuels uh, because we are on such a tight timeline. Naomi Klein, her new piece at The Nation is titled, The Problem with Hillary Clinton Isn't Just Her Corporate Cash, It's Her Corporate Worldview. Naomi, thanks so much for talking with us today. Great talking with you. Take care, Don. Now it's time to talk with Andrew Basevich about America's wars in the Middle East. Basevich is a retired professor of history and international relations at Boston University He's a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy and served for 23 years as a commissioned officer in the U.S. Army. He received his Ph.D. in American Diplomatic History from Princeton. Before joining the faculty of Boston University in 1998, he taught at West Point and at Johns Hopkins. His three most recent books, those were Breach of Trust, Washington Rules, and The Limits of Power, all hit the New York Times bestseller list. He's a winner of the Lannan Notable Book Award. 
He lectures frequently at universities around the country, and he publishes often in The Nation and at Tom Dispatch, also in the L.A. Times and other places. Andrew Basevich, welcome back. Oh, thanks very much. For a lot of people, when we ask about the subject of your book, America's War for the Greater Middle East, they would say the reason we went to war in the Middle East is because they attacked us on 9-11. Bin Laden declared war on the United States, so... We went after their bases and their fighters and the government in Afghanistan at the time that supported them. But but you say the invasion of Afghanistan uh, after 9-11 was not the beginning of America's war for the greater Middle East. When, when would you begin the story? I begin my story in 1980 uh, and, and let me explain why. Uh, and, and the first point is this is this is a military history of this war for the greater Middle East and the implication here is not that there is no history that happens before 1980. There's a lot of history and there is U.S. involvement in the region before 1980 but not any significant military involvement. So what happens in 1980? Well, what happens is in January, uh, we've got the State of the Union address and President Jimmy Carter uses that occasion – to declare that henceforth the United States will consider the Persian Gulf uh, a vital U.S. national security interest, which means in layperson's terms, the Persian Gulf is now a place that we will fight for. <clears throat> and uh, I'm quite confident uh, that when Carter said that, he had zero understanding of the process that he was an initiating. But what ensued was the militarization of U.S policy. Almost immediately, the Pentagon began uh, thinking about planning for uh, U.S. military intervention in the region and indeed very quickly, uh, inter interventions began to occur. Now, the approximate issue or, 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 or purpose was to secure oil. Uh, but, but the argument I'm making in the book is that uh, – not denying that, that war was that proximate cause, that the stakes in many respects were far larger in the estimation of U.S. policymakers, that, that this was uh, a, an undertaking to push back against any appearance that the United States faced limits, that the United States was a normal country, that the United States had to compromise, that, the, that Americans had to surrender a definition of freedom based on the expectations of more and more and more. Middle Eastern oil is no longer as important to us in the United States today as it was in 1980. In fact, you could say we don't really need it at all anymore. Uh, and this is, this is, I think, perhaps the greatest irony uh, in this entire episode. It's probably true, uh, whether we like it or not that the prevailing definition of freedom to which most Americans subscribe does still require lots and lots of cheap gas. Mm -hmm. And if defending the place the gas comes from uh, should figure as a, a core interest, then we ought to be defending Canada and Venezuela, <laughs> uh, not so much Saudi Arabia and Iraq because you're right, uh, there is uh, plenty of fossil fuel resources here in the Western Hemisphere. So, so that initial trigger or stimulus uh, no longer pertains and yet, despite that fact, the war grinds on uh, with no end in sight 
and with no evidence based on everything we have done over the last three and a half decades, with no evidence that further military exertions on the part of the United States are going to yield a positive outcome. One of the most remarkable moments in this long war in the Middle East comes when Ray, early in Reagan's presidency, one of the most devastating attacks on American forces of the last several decades, the terrorist attack on the Marine uh, barracks in, in Beirut. Uh, I've read that more Marines were lost that day than any day since Iwo Jima. I, I don't know if that's right, but it was hundreds. Two, right? 241 killed in a single day. 241 killed in a single day. And what was Reagan's response to that? Well, he cut and run for all practical purposes. But, but regardless of his response, I think the episode uh, is really emblematic of the larger war. Uh, and it's emblematic in this sense. Uh, Reagan and those around him uh, believed that the mere presence of American soldiers in this immensely complicated uh, Lebanese civil war, further complicated by the fact that uh, the state of Israel had uh, in 1982 invaded uh, Lebanon, the, 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 the naivete of thinking that just inserting a reinforced battalion of American Marines was going to somehow restore uh, harmony was utterly absurd, resulted in the needless death of all of these Marines uh, and, and, and didn't actually uh, yield much in terms of, of useful lessons. But again, as, as an episode that's happening quite early in my narrative, uh, it's a sad foretelling of, of uh, sadly, worse things uh, to come. His use of the military in the greater Middle East was utterly incoherent. Uh, so there was the Lebanon debacle. There was uh, early jousting, long forgotten now, uh, with Muammar Gaddafi in Libya, which resulted in a sort of one-and-done bombing raid that the Reagan administration believed would teach Gaddafi a lesson mm. uh, and prevent uh, Gaddafi from, uh, from utilizing terror. Of course, Gaddafi's response was to blow Pan Am 109 out of the sky. Perhaps most rep reprehensibly, uh, Reagan intervenes in the Iran-Iraq War of 1980 to 1988. Who does he intervene on behalf of? Well, Saddam Hussein, uh, the guy who started the war in the first place. Uh, so there we are supporting Saddam Hussein in a war of aggression and simultaneously secretly and illegally providing weapons to Iran as part of the famous Iran-Contra affair. You call this an incoherent policy. Well, it, it is an utterly – I mean there, there, is no, there is no logic. Mm -hmm. I mean in, in Reagan's mind there was a logic. He, he does appear to have been uh, in a very personal sense uh, deeply concerned about the well-being of a small number of hostages being held uh, in Lebanon. And he, and he fancied, I think it was a fancy, that by winning favor with uh, the government in Tehran, that they would then uh, return the favor by helping get the hostage. Never happened. Never happened. Boy, when you look at his policies in the greater Middle East, uh, he, he paved the way for an ongoing series of military failures. Now, what some of, some of uh, my friends argue is that uh, we're in the Middle East now. We are fighting wars not for American oil, not to protect American power, but uh, to protect 
uh, in particular women, that women, in, especially in Afghanistan, have had a brief opening under American power. They've been able to go to school for the first time. Our enemies uh, in Afghanistan, in ISIS, uh, will do terrible things to girls, women, girls' schools if we leave. Therefore, we have a, a responsibility to protect them. What, what are the initials for this? RT RTP. RTP. I, yeah. had not, I learned this from your book. RTP, mm -hmm. Responsibility to Protect. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you say to that argument? Well, uh, I mean, it's an argument that uh, ought not to be ignored. I mean, I don't mean to complicate the situation, but if indeed the United States were to become a nation that took seriously the moral consequences of its actions and that did uh, feel a genuine obligation to redress the moral harm that we've done, well, we got a lot of work to do in a lot of different places. Uh, you know, why, why does Afghanistan come first? What, what, what do we owe to the people of Iraq? What do we owe to the people of Vietnam? What do we owe to the Native American population? Uh, and on and on. So again, I'm not trying to dismiss the argument, uh, but, but to say that if indeed uh, redressing the moral wrongs that we have committed, then we really need to think very deeply about what's the pecking order, who comes first and who comes last. Uh, I have to tell you, and maybe I'm being too cynical here, that I don't believe that when the president of the United States, whoever that happens to be, is sitting around the Oval Office with you know six other people and they're trying to figure out what to do about problem X, uh, I, I seriously doubt that moral issues figure in a substantial way in their discussion. Now, once a decision has been made, let's say in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, uh, to go after the Taliban uh, for having provided sanctuary to al-Qaeda, to go after al-Qaeda itself because at that point we know bin Laden is Afghanistan, then the speechwriters get to work and they, 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 they sort of put a layer of frosting on the cake and, and suddenly it's about freedom, it's about democracy, it's about the rights of women, uh, you know, it's, it's about the environment, uh, you name it. Uh, and those are all worthy and important things. I think we should not delude ourselves uh, to imagine that that actually describes the motivation for American behavior, whether we're talking about Afghanistan after 9-11 or, or frankly, any of the other uh, operations and campaigns that, that I describe uh, in, in my book. Uh, last question. You said you don't think it's a good idea to try harder or, quote, do more uh, in our current wars in Syria and elsewhere. Um, we agree ISIS does terrible things. ISIS is a you know, evil force. If we're not going to, quote, try harder and do more with our military, what do you think we should do? Point number one, I really think this is, this is a history book. This is not a policy book. Right. And, 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 but, but it is a history book that uh, has underlying policy motivations in a sense. And, and, the, and the motivation really is to invite the reader to evaluate. Yes. What our efforts have achieved and at what cost, and and therefore to invite the reader to to share my conclusion, which is that the war for the greater Middle East is uh, is a failure, uh, and 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 therefore the imperative is to think creatively about 
demilitarizing U.S. policies and finding other ways to deal with the problems. Now, you you mentioned ISIS. Uh, ISIS is a vile organization, uh, you know, just terrible cutthroats. It's also an entity that has no air force, no navy, uh, no serious resource base, no allies, probably has about 25,000 lightly armed fighters and they're across the ocean about 7,000 miles away. ISIS does not pose an existential threat to the United States of America. ISIS does pose an existential threat to Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Iran, Turkey, maybe Israel. And the point there is that it seems to me that the solution is get the countries of the region who differ with one another about many, many things to recognize that they do face a common transcendent threat. And were they to do that, they could handle ISIS. Uh, So our task is not to drop more bombs. Our task is to try to nudge these countries to recognize this common interest and to act in ways that are consistent with their own self-interest. Andrew Basevich, his new book is America's War for the Greater Middle East, A Military History. Thanks for coming in today. Thank you. Believe it or not, Amy Goodman has been hosting Democracy Now! for 20 years. The show now is heard on more than 1,400 public radio and TV stations around the world, and millions of people listen online or watch online at democracynow.org. And now she has a new book out. It's called Democracy Now! 20 Years of Covering the Movements Changing America. I caught up with her at the L.A. Times Festival of Books. Amy Goodman, congratulations on 20 years of Democracy Now! and on the book Democracy Now! and welcome to the program. Oh, it's great to be with you, John. So uh, just a, a personal note, my favorite show of yours lately was the one you did with Patti Smith. It was wonderful. Oh, my gosh. M-Train. Yeah, Patti Smith is certainly one of my heroines. Um, and, you know, she's been there for the long haul. On the one hand, the super-powered celebrity... Uh, both artist, photographer, writer, singer, yet at the same time very accessible. And so modest. I mean, she did the song about Gitmo, uh, she did one on Rachel Corey, but she says, I'm not really an activist, I'm not really a musician. Yeah, right. (laughs) One more personal note. Five or six years ago, my wife and I were in a taxi on the way to L.A. airport to fly to New Mexico for a vacation. The cab driver was an Iranian guy who was listening to Democracy Now! And your guest was a Jesuit priest who was an anti-nuclear activist who said there were more nuclear weapons stored at the Albuquerque airport than any place else in the United States. And my wife turned to me and said, isn't that where we're going right now? And I had to say, well, I'm sorry to say, yes, it is. So I imagine a lot of your listeners probably don't remember that program, but in our house, we'll never forget it. Do you remember that guy, Father John? Father John John Deere, of course. And, you know, I fly into Albuquerque a lot and think about this, and there's Kirtland Air Base. And um, if New Mexico were to secede from the Union, I think it would be the third most power, the third biggest nuclear power Mm. in the world. Mm. One of the most important things in your book, Democracy Now!, is your section listing some of the African-Americans killed by the police in 
just in 20, part of 2014 and, and 2015. We know some of these names. Eric Garner on Staten Island, Michael Brown in Ferguson, Laquan McDonald in Chicago, Freddie Gray in Baltimore, Tamir Rice, the 12-year-old kid in Cleveland. Thank you for putting all those together because they kind of blur together, you know. You know, um, that's in our chapter, When the Killer Wears a Badge. And at first I thought, I mean, this litany is so horrific. But to see one person after another, and this is a tiny fraction um, to understand what happens. It's both, for example, Eric Garner, of course, the unarmed African-American man killed by the New York police um, in July, on July 17, 2014. He is choked to death in a chokehold by the New York police officer, Daniel Pantaleo, who not only was not indicted, but the prosecutor who didn't indict him went on to run for Congress and win from but, Staten Island. And let's just remember his crime, selling loose cigarettes. Mm. Um, and he was well-known in the community, if folks were from the community. But there was someone who was arrested. Uh, he was the young man standing just feet from uh, Eric Garner as he was being choked to death. As Eric was saying 11 times, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. The person who ultimately would be arrested a while later was Ramsey Orta. He was the young man who flipped open his phone and started filming. The mm. only reason we know what happened to Eric Garner is because of that videotape. He stayed there through all of the minutes that he was choked, that he was on the ground, that the emergency medical workers didn't help him. Um, and ultimately, he would get arrested, his wife would get arrested, his mother would get arrested. And one of the times Ramsey was arrested, he said the police said to him, you filmed us, now we're filming you. Um, it is so important that we, as citizens and non-citizens of this country, be aware, take charge, yes, open up those cell phones, uh, take out cameras, uh, because it's the documentation that is so critical. It doesn't mean someone will be held accountable, but it is a beginning. And Ramsey Orta took that risk. And that's why we know what happened to Eric Garner. That's why we know what happened to Walter Scott, another in this litany. I went to where he was killed in North Charleston, South Carolina. I went there after going to the funeral of Reverend Clementa Pinckney, the state senator of South Carolina who died with eight other of his parishioners in the horrific massacre at Mother Emanuel Church. And when I was being taken to the airport, I said, please pull over because the airport's right next to North Charleston. I just want to go to this strip of land, which has now become a sacred ground where someone was killed. And why do we know what happened? That he was shot in the back by a police officer unprovoked. Uh, he was stopped, his car in a traffic stop. He was right at an auto zone. Uh, the light was out, they said. And he was at the auto zone and they stopped him. Mm. He ran, the police officer went after him and shot him in the back. We know because a bystander filmed with his phone. Well, now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Garrison Keillor. You were arrested in St. Paul. It was 2008. The Republican National Convention was in St. Paul. That's where John McCain was nominated. That's where uh, Sarah Palin was presented to the world. How did you get arrested? 
What happened to you in St. Paul? You know, we just come from the Denver convention where Barack Obama was nominated the first time to be the Democratic presidential candidate. There were mass protests in Denver as well. And then we raced to St. Paul for the next week of what, well, these conventions are supposed to be celebrations of democracy. And it was that big moment for John McCain and Sarah Palin. We covered a mass protest Monday morning. It was Labor Day, Blue Sky Day. 10,000 people marched for peace, led by soldiers, some in uniform, and that's risky too. And then me and Rick Rowley of Big Noise Films, who made was the Oscar-nominated film Dirty Wars uh, with Jeremy Scahill, we went off to the convention floor. You know, you have to have all levels of security to go there, interview delegates, maybe you bump into a president or a vice president. And we went to the hottest state to interview delegates, Alaska. And um, <laughs> then I get a call from Mike Burke, our senior producer, come quickly to 7th and Jackson. Sharif and Nicole have been arrested. They've been bloodied by police. Get over there now. I said, what are you talking about? They're in the TV studio digitized tape. We just came from the protest. Get there now. We raced out, ran down the street, found this corner, and we see riot police had surrounded the area. And um, I just needed to get Nicole and Sharif. So I ran down the line of riot police looking for someone with, in New York, we call it with the scrambled eggs, the gold braid on their hat to find a senior officer. And I couldn't find one, but I stopped at one of the officers. I said, excuse me, um, we have two reporters inside. We need to have them released. My name is Amy Goodman from Democracy Now. And it wasn't seconds before these police officers, these riot police, whipped me through the line, pulled back my arms, twisted my hands back and slapped handcuffs. I was saying, please don't arrest me. Please don't. You know, I have all the full credentials on from the floor of the, the convention. And they throw me up against a car, up against a wall, and onto the ground. And they charge me with a misdemeanor, what was it, um, interfering with a peace officer. If only there was a peace officer in the vicinity. I'm desperately still looking from my vantage point on the ground for Sharif and Nicole. It's Sharif Abdel Kadus and Nicole Salazar. Um, Sharif, I see across the parking lot, they'd arrested a lot of protesters here, but he's standing, his arms clearly handcuffed behind his back. I demand to be brought to him. Finally, I am. We're standing saying, release us now. We are journalists. Whereupon the Secret Service came and ripped the credentials from around our Ooh. necks. So then the secrets, uh, the police take me, bring me to the police wagon, and there is Nicole. By the way, Sharif's arm was bloodied, and Nicole's face was bleeding. And there's Nicole with her credentials in the police wagon. And I said, Nicole, what happened? And she said, we went up to the TV studio to digitize tape. We see that there were riot police outside who are confronting protesters. You know, they wouldn't have been doing their job, Sharif and Nicole, if they hadn't grabbed camera and microphone and raced downstairs. And while they were there filming, the riot police came right at them. So Nicole didn't plan to film her own violent arrest. But as the riot police come out here, they're shouting, on your face, on your face. She's up against cars. There's nowhere she can go. Um, and they take her down from behind and in front. She didn't know what hit her. And she's taken down. Her camera tumbles down. They pull the battery out of her camera, if you're wondering what they wanted to stop happening. And they've got their boot or knee in her back. And so her face is on the ground, and they start dragging her. So they're bloodying her face. Sharif is a very calm guy. And he's telling the riot police to calm down, and they throw him up against the wall, kick him twice in the chest, and take him down and bloody his arm. So 
they were taken, I was taken to the police garage where they erected cages to put the protesters in. Sharif and Nicole were taken to jail facing felony riot charges. There was such an enormous outcry. They got, the authorities there got thousands of tweets and uh, faxes, calls, emails to release us. And so finally I was. I was taken back to the convention, and then Sharif and Nicole were. And I was in the NBC skybox. I was being interviewed. And afterwards, NBC reporter came over and said, I don't get it. Why wasn't I arrested? I said, oh, were you outside covering the protests? And he said, no. I said, well, that's the thing. I don't get arrested in the skybox either. Um, It takes getting out there. And we have a job, both inside and outside the convention, get to the delegates, go to the corporate suites, who's sponsoring the Democrats and the Republicans, and get out into the streets where the uninvited guests are. They have something important to say as well. And we shouldn't have to get a record when we put things on the record. So we sued the St. Paul, Minneapolis police and the Secret Service. The Secret Service tried to get severed from the case. Um, They at first claimed they had nothing to do with this. We were fortunate because when they pulled our credentials, we didn't know who anyone was. A lot of them are wearing black. They're covered. We don't know what their names or their numbers are. But we were so angry that they pulled our uh, credentials that I turned to the police officer who had tightened my handcuffs. And I said, you have no right to do this. And he said, that wasn't us. That was the Secret Service. So now it was the police uh, in testimony um, against the Secret Service. So they couldn't get out of admitting that they were there. They were the ones. Uh, And we ultimately won a settlement, um, a six-figure settlement after a number of years, um, a few years, about three years. And we held our news conference announcing this because it was right before the next convention of 2012. We didn't want this to happen again. I mean, there were over 40 reporters who were arrested at the 2008 Republican convention. Um, The cities are indemnified from doing the wrong thing at these conventions. So the police can act without being concerned that they're bankrupting their city. Um, And we didn't want this to happen again at the next convention. Not only arrests of journalists, but illegal arrests of anyone. And so we thought, where can we hold the announcement that we have won the settlement so that the police would hear and also protesters would hear? Well, what would be the largest gathering of police and protesters at that moment? It was Zuccotti Park. (laughs) So we went with our lawyers down to Zuccotti Park and spoke loud and clear, surrounded by the police and many protesters, and announced that they have to stop doing this. There is a reason why our profession, journalism, is the only one explicitly protected by the U.S. Constitution, because we're supposed to be the check and balance on power. Journalism is essential to the functioning of a democratic society. Amy Goodman, thanks for 20 years of democracy now. Congratulations on the book, and thanks so much for talking with us today. Well, John, thank you so much for all of your work, and it's great to see you at the LA Times Festival. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded and edited by Jerry Gorin and Ernesto Orellano at Emerson College, Los Angeles. Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Our engagement editor is Annie Shields. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Stitcher, SoundCloud, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. This is the story of the one. 
As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.